We started in this text uh, last week. The one who trembles at God's word, and it's the God's word part that makes it fit into this series, the book, uh, how we got it and how to get the most out of it. We've been working in the last number of weeks on the how to get the most out of it part. So I started in on this text, Isaiah 66, 1 to 4. It's a very striking text, and I'm not going to review the whole thing. The last one is, it's online. And by the way, the whole gender thing, I did a, a brief series called uh, Fifty Shades of Gender. And I talk about those issues. That's online, too, only because I mentioned it. But this last week's prequel to the one who trembles at God's word, that's online. Isaiah 66, 1 to 4. Thus says the Lord, quote, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things look around you. My hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. And then I mentioned last week, and I'm, I'm not going to analyze these verses again, but when you get to that third verse, it's, it's like you hit some kind of a bump and it just jars you from those beautiful poetic words in verse 3, in verse 2 rather, you just launch into this quote in verse 3. He who slaughters an ox... And the first part of each of these parallels is, is uh, something done in the temple. You'll notice that. And then it's followed, it's coupled with something that's considered very grotesque and offensive. So who slaughters an ox, like the sacrifice, is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, all through the Old Testament, like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like you would in the Old Testament. Like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of incense. Like one who blesses an idol. Now, the text doesn't say these people have all done these bad things. But here's, here's what they have done, and it's as offensive to God as if they had done these offensive things... These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. So also I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So the theme of this text and the core of last week's teaching is God's rebuke to religious people who try to live in two worlds at the same time. They Specifically, they, they come to the temple. They do these things. They offer their sacrifices, their grain offerings. They burn their incense. All those things commanded under the old covenant. They do all the right things, but at the same time, they try and live the rest of their lives on their own terms. So, this is this very specific rebuke to people who try to keep up the forms of their religion while they choose their own ways, verse 4. They choose their own ways 
just in the parts of their lives that aren't lived in the temple. They sign contracts. They make deals. They go to work. They keep house. They raise children. In those areas, they, they take care of themselves on their terms. Then they go to church. The way they convince themselves that this kind of duplicity is going to last, it's very clever. They tell themselves that the temple is God's house. It's, it's where God does God's stuff. You know, religious stuff. It's very important. And the temple is called God's house in various places in the Old Testament. But it's not called God's house in the sense that it's his exclusive territory and he's nowhere else. But if they remind themselves, this is God's house. That's why God speaks to them in that text we read. Where's the house you're going to build for me? I made everything that you see. Seriously? You're going to build a room and think that holds me? On the earth that I made? But it is easier to tell themselves that when they're not in God's house, then, then they're on their own turf. God's house my life outside of God's house. And it's not that they were all murderers and adulterers. I suppose the sin of adultery was committed then as now. But, but the point of the text is, when they make this split, when they live their lives, making their own decisions, on their own terms, as though God was limited to his house and they were free to do what they wanted, that's as offensive as those things listed in our text that seem so ugly in our ears. It's still done. We fall prey to this kind of thinking. It's easier to tell ourselves, isn't it? This is God's house. Here we are in church Sunday night. So when I'm not in God's house, when I'm on my way home from church or youth night or prayer meeting or worship band practice or well when I'm then I'm on my I'm on my I'm not punching the clock. I'm on my own time. And God says it isn't so. He isn't contained in any man-made structure. He's the creator. He's the creator of us, as a matter of fact. And so the key point in last week's teaching was not that these were, you know, bad-to-the-bone sort of people. Their sin was they were, they were just partial, incomplete in their recognition of God's claim on their lives, particularly not so much on their money in this instance, but their time. Most people would much rather give God their money than their time. Certainly God had a right to the sacrifices and the fasts and the ceremonies, all the religious stuff, the temple stuff, choirs, offerings, Bibles, communion, baptism, Classes, that, that sort of stuff, that was God's turf. 
but they reserved the right to pursue their own agendas, their own desires when they were away from the temple, and they would choose their own ways. That's where we finished up last week. Except that the prophet then, and this is how we wrapped up, in contrast to that kind of uh, justified indifference, selective indifference, really, not denying God, but that kind of selective indifference, the prophet contrasts, God speaks through Isaiah, and he says, but, but, but there is one person that I, I notice. In this, in this crowd of this kind of thinking, Here's, here's the one person that stands out. And the prophet says that God looks for someone who lives his whole life, or her whole life, turning an ear toward God. I'll talk about that a bit more tonight. God looks for someone, the text says, who trembles at his word, who, who, who fears missing something. From God and his word. Today I want to study what it means to tremble at God's word. I took a long time introducing it. We're going to go through fairly quickly five points. Point number one. Here's what a trembling heart looks like. A trembling heart sees the authority of God behind everything in his word. We'll never know for sure exactly how it comes about. How a heart, an individual heart, might be in a young person, a young adult, an older person, a senior. How a heart suddenly wakes up. I don't just mean gets saved. I mean wakes up to making God important in all of life. I don't know exactly what brings people to that. But, but you, always, you always know when you've bumped into someone like that. Someone who knows how to make God significant. Everywhere they go and in everything they do. And I'll tell you something else about those people. They annoy backslidden Christians to no end. Religious do-gooders. All they do is read their Bibles. And it's not that at all. It's someone who, someone who hasn't learned yet the joy that someone suddenly wakes up to when God becomes meaningful. I don't mean believing in God. I mean he becomes meaningful in everything that they do. They're, 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 they're genuine people. They're whole people. Lots of times it comes through trial. Lots of times it comes through financial setback. Perhaps it comes through suddenly really coming to grips. I mean really coming to grips with the shortness of life. It doesn't happen to anybody before they're 50. They grease the slope after 50. But someone really, they always knew it, but all of a sudden it, it registers. 
like, like they're confronted with their own mortality and the shortness of life. Usually through encountering some kind of pain or perhaps the bondage that always results when we have a belief in God, go to church, but don't take him seriously. Somehow, somehow, people like that, they come and they bump into God as a meaningful person in all of life. It's rare. But however it happens, at some point, God and his word, it's beautiful if you see it in a young life. God and his word aren't just believed in. God and his word start to count. Meat and muscle start to form on the bare habit of going to church. It isn't to score points and get to heaven. It's, it's to hear God. It isn't to provide a good example for the kids. It's to hear God. It isn't to see what what's-his-face might say up on the platform that week. Maybe it'll be a good topic. It's to hear God. The whole thing, the whole thing suddenly takes on a life of its own because suddenly God matters. So people who tremble at God's word, however it comes about, Whenever it comes about, they start to hear God at a different level. They, they, they start to treasure God all for themselves. They, they, they care about it all. You can actually see Moses. The point that I'm trying to make, you can actually see Moses. Here's how long the church has struggled with this. You can see Moses trying to make the same point to the children of Israel. Here's what he says, Deuteronomy 32, 46, 47. He, that's Moses, said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Look at 47. For it is no empty word for you. It's your life. It's your very life. God's word about sexual immorality. God's word about material consumerism. God's word about your entertainment. God's word about dishonesty. God's word about seeking first his kingdom. Suddenly a person wakes up one day and they don't just see God as trying to restrict life and fence them in. They start to see God as trying to maximize their life. God trying to make it work. God trying to make it count. It's, it's, a, it's a seeing issue. You can't force it on someone. You wish you could. It, it's a matter of spiritual sight. It's a matter of perception. Pray about this more than you pray for your physical health. Pray about this more than you pray for financial prosperity. Pray about this more than you pray for a good retirement. Those needs are small in comparison. Paul, he prays for the Christians at Ephesus in 118. He says that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. This kind of person... When they come to God's word, they don't just see words, they don't just see topics, they don't just see subjects. They see their life. So, that's what, that's what puts the trembling in the trembling heart. 
the person, somehow, at some point, the person has come to know at a very deep level that he or she will be making life-diminishing choices every time God's word isn't consciously taken into account. And that's not the way we naturally think. We all have that Adam and Eve mind that only sees a piece of fruit eaten on our own terms. And what can be so serious about that anyway? So this is the foundational first point. I'm taking a little bit longer with it. A trembling heart sees God in all that God says. And I don't just mean a head belief that God gave us the Bible. It's true, but that conviction all by itself gives very little spiritual traction. I mean the conviction that just as surely as he created the universe, he empowers his word to accomplish his creative purposes in my tattered little life. Making God count is making life work. Okay, point number two. A trembling heart will never form a case against immediately performing God's word. Here you have one of the clearest evidences, I guess, of, of... God says, I look for the one who trembles at my word. Here's how, here's how you might recognize it again. This person would rather suffer any other loss than do anything contrary to what God has revealed. A picture of it would be, we sang that chorus tonight. It's called Revelation Song. I sometimes feel um, worried a little bit about visitors who come in and you don't see the title of the chorus and you, and you read... Uh, Rainbows of living color, flashes of lightning, rolls of thunder. And if, and if you don't know anything from your Bible, I sometimes think, is there a visitor that thinks we're just singing about like a bad drug trip or something? Or, or... It's, it's the vision in the book of Revelation that we're singing about. Revelation 6, 9 says this. When he opened the fifth seal, you get this vision. It's a picture. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. I wonder, I wonder exactly what John saw, if, if, if we could have seen it. You, you get a picture, don't you, of these blood-spattered lives piled up under this huge altar. Why are they there? Well, they're there because they'd rather be slain than go against the word of God. Other people would look at the same word and never see what they saw. Others didn't have the same heart to stay close to God's word. I mean, after all, it can only be worth so much to tremble at God's word. All of us give a certain honor, don't we, to God's word? A certain level of buy-in. We've been raised to do that. And for most of our Christian lives, especially here in Canada... For most of our Christian lives, almost, not quite, but almost all of those beliefs can be held just as a second nature. There's there's not much of a price tag, not yet. So we can be, we're Christians almost in the same way that we live in a Christian country or we're French or Italian. And my conviction is that sooner or later, God will bring 
intentionally, in his plan, God will bring everyone in this room, young and old. God will bring each of us to a point where we have to, we have to choose our convictions with a higher awareness and, and at a greater cost than we normally do. God will bring each of us to a point, I pray you're alert to it when it happens, where we will all tremble one way or the other. When you're younger, youth, young adults, it's easy to tremble at the opinion of our friends, our peers. We don't want to lose relationships. You can tremble at the loss of coolness loss of power when you get older, a loss of wealth, a loss of influence, a loss of what you perceive to be your freedom. Or, when called to choice, when a parting of the ways comes and you have to plant the flag and choose something, or God will give you his grace and you will tremble more about grieving God than losing anything else on earth. And that is where you start to grow. That is where you start to grow. It's the only test I know of for determining where your heart stands with God. You're brought to a point of decision. And it's at that point. It's not what you believe that reveals who you are. It's what you fear most giving up when you're confronted with a choice between what you want and what God's word requires. And if there's anything you fear losing more than you fear losing the pleasure of God, your Christian life is thin and it's going to crumble. But if what you fear losing most is the smile of God, remember this. If what you fear most in life is displeasing God, if that's what you fear most, and don't just say it, it has to really be true. If what you fear most in life is displeasing God, you can't make a bad decision. Or you might make a bad decision financially, a bad, I'm talking about a, a, a morally bad decision, a life-ruining decision. If what you fear most in life is displeasing God, you can't make a bad decision. Which is why, by the way, you'll notice over and over again, the Bible equates wisdom, real wisdom, not with your religious beliefs, but with what you fear. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? And all who practice it. Practice what? Fearing the Lord. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. And so the best advice I can give you is when you come to that point, that point of choosing God when it costs, you are at a shaping point for the rest of your life. 
No time is worth more weight and concentration and prayer and diligence than that point. It's the tipping point for your future. Guard your heart when it comes. Tremble at God's word as you tremble at nothing else. Three. A trembling heart fears the judgment of God upon those who disregard his word. I think uh, many, many, many churches train Christians not to even think about the judgment of God anymore. And it's sad. Christians can mistakenly assume that not always caring about God's word is, is fairly normal and almost to be expected in a compromising age like ours. And after all, he's loving and gracious and it's not going to make that much difference anyway. To God, it is unbelievable that anyone would not take his word very seriously. I was reading Jeremiah. Do you have that text in your notes, the Jeremiah text? Okay, good. 5, 21 to 25. Hear this. And God's not being tactful here. You can see it. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people. He's talking to his people. Who have eyes. You got them in your head, he's saying. But do not see. Who have ears, but hear not. And then here, here's the... Here's the astounding thing. Do, do you not fear me? Declares the Lord. Same word here. Do you not tremble before me? Then he talks about the kind of stuff he does. I place the sand as a boundary for the sea. When you see these floods and stuff on the news, do you know why stuff like that happens? It's God's way of just reminding us what happens if for one second... He lifts his finger from the order of creation. We can't control a thing. I place the sand as a boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. That's what I do, God says. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. Look at 24. This is priceless. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord God. This just makes sense. They never say that. Who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. It's the end of the quote. These people don't say that to themselves. How could they not? Angels in heaven just go, What? God says, what a strange thing it is that people who are so dependent on my patience and my mercy, who couldn't even last a week without rain, will harden their hearts against my might and my authority. Makes no sense. There does seem to be something in us. If the word of the Lord means anything at all, there does seem to be something that we have to push back against. Something in us that is slow to wake up. These people in Jeremiah's day, they're already suffering from the pain of their disobedience to the voice of God. The prophet says the fields, the crops were drying up before their eyes as God closed up the heavens. And yet they're still choosing their own ways. They don't fear God. How is that possible? And so I see there's 
something beyond mere intellect involved here. I, I see from that text that, that choosing my own way when I'm not in the temple is, is uh, it's both stupid, but it's also addictive. Everyone else sees what it's doing to my life, and, and I don't. Point number four. The one who trembles at God's word knows it reaches to the very depths and core of his being, or her being. One of the tragedies of, of the uh, moral tug of our culture is it trains us to only deal with the surface of our lives so much of the time. I'm not, if you're here and you do this, I'm not, I'm not criticizing you. I'm, we all have our things. I get it. But it seems so striking to me. We're adults, grown-ups. If you had ever told my grandpa that people in their 30s and 40s were going to spend precious hours every day playing video games, like playing games was for seven-year-olds. It wasn't for 40-year-olds. Our entertainment, it, it teaches us to treasure the trite and the trivial. We're, we're, we're trained to look at and think about things that never do touch the core of our beings, is what I'm trying to say. And here's the thing, all of that, all of that tug makes it very hard for people to think seriously and deeply about God. Because God never comes to you that easily. On, off. You can't deal with God like that. This is really what our Isaiah 66 text is all about. The people had closed their eyes to the real God by just persistently choosing their own ways when they weren't in the temple. And the result of this was they actually came to believe that as long as the stuff was going on in the temple the rest of their lives were fine. And that's, that's where you get that weird, you know, people that offer sacrifices are like people that break a dog's neck. <laughs> like, this isn't acceptable to me. Five. Gotta skip some stuff. The one who trembles at God's word is moved by God's unbelievable grace and promise. That might surprise people. It might surprise people that the goodness of the Lord would make us fear him and tremble. I can remember reading through the Bible when I came across that Psalm 2, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. I mean, that's a strange combination, isn't it? Rejoice with trembling. Now, we've already seen this clue about 
what rejoicing with trembling means. The prophet Jeremiah was amazed that the people didn't fear the Lord in spite of the fact that he was the one who sent rain and sunshine to make their fields flourish. And here's what, here's what we ought to learn. What's being taught there is this. The real object of God sending rain to those people, or this people, the real object in God sending rain to those people wasn't just to give a harvest. The real object God had in sending rain to those people was to make them think about the God who sends the rain to give them harvest. Just as the real reason God will send rain and sunshine to make all your roses and your hydrangeas start looking so beautiful. God's goal, please remember, isn't so you can sit and look at your roses and think, my, are they beautiful. That's fine. But the real purpose is to make you stand in awe of a God who sends the rain to do that. God's purpose in making your roses bloom is to help make you the kind of person who thinks about the goodness of God. You see it? God doesn't send the rain just to make your roses pretty. God sends the rain to make you consider how much we owe to such a gracious God. The real purpose is to make you stand in awe, to rejoice with trembling. God sends all these manifestations of grace continually to make us spiritually attentive, not just to consume all of our energies on personal enjoyment. How can I put it so that it's rememberable? Taking the pleasure without yielding the commitment. That's what prostitution is all about. Taking the pleasure without yielding the commitment. That's extreme, Pastor Don. Really? It's exactly why God calls these selective hearers of his word. You know what he calls them? Adulterers. Why adulterers? Because they enjoy material blessings without deeply considering and fearing God in the same way a person enjoys sex without the commitment of marriage. So today, as it has always been, God says the scriptures in the scriptures that he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust, but the unjust just don't think about God. God's goodness bounces off them like water. I'm sorry. Rain bounces off them like water. It's not that way with the righteous. It, it's not just their gardens, but their hearts that get softened by God's rain, and they, they tremble in amazement before That's where that text leaves us. We'll look at it again, maybe one more week. Let's pray.